Exodus 7, verses 1 through 13 said, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle. Then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. hearts, our minds, to learn what you would want us to learn today. Because you are God and we are your servants, your people, called according to your good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to uh, ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, or if you have the little, uh, little booklet that, you, uh, that we have at the back with the story of Nehemiah, or actually the scripture, Nehemiah's scripture, in it, then uh, turn to chapter 4, whether it's in the full Bible or the, the little guy. Either way is fine. Uh, I want to start out by saying how much I appreciate the consistent, solid, truthful teaching that Pastor Greg has been presenting to us uh, overall, but from the book of Nehemiah in this series. I really am grateful that God has given us a pastor who's committed to the teaching of the Word of God with accuracy, to teach us what the Word of God says. It's not as common as it should be. A lot of preachers 
use the Word of God to teach instead of teach the Word of God. And there's a big difference. It's important that we do this right. Greg has repeatedly told us as we've gone through this that this story of Nehemiah is not about a great man. It's not the story of a great leader. It's a story of a sovereign God. And that's something that a principle that we need to apply to the Word of God as we read it and as we study it, because the Word of God is full of stories of God's interaction with human beings, His creation, with men and with women, with children. But it's not about the men and the women and children, it's about God. And we learn not about how to be a great person from the model of the people in Scripture, even though some of them seem like and probably were amazing people. It's always about God. And the same is true in our lives, in our stories. You hear people talk about their testimony, their story. Testimony is good, but our story is not about us. The story of how I came to faith in Christ personally, Marshall Pennell, is not about me. It's about God, how God dealt with this guy. Our story is about God. It's not about us. The stories in the Bible are about God. They're not about us. And Greg has represented that faithfully and accurately as he's taught us through the book of Nehemiah so far. It's not about a great man. It's about our sovereign God. Greg has been teaching us what the Scripture teaches, not just things that would be interesting to hear or to learn or some odd application that we could take from that or draw from that to teach some life principle. Cannot overstate the importance of sound teaching. Last week, uh, it was interesting. I sat back there where I sit, and it's fun, isn't it, the way people sit where they sit? You know, you might not know everybody's name, but you know where they sit. And, uh, you know, I think you guys over here need to do some recruiting. A couple of empty sections, so you can work on that. Uh, last week when I was sitting right back there, uh, I was, uh, I, th I found it entertaining the way Pastor Greg uh, was teaching from chapter 4, backed up to chapter 2 so that he could get a run at it like evil Knievel, uh, getting a, a good ramp so he can get up speed to hit the ramp and make the jump over 19 buses. Greg backed up into chapter 2 to get up some speed, hit the ramp, and jumped right over chapter 3 and landed perfect landing in chapter 4 for good reason. And the good reason has to do with what I was just talking about, about the sound teaching of the Word of God, teaching what's in the Word of God, not using the Word of God to teach something else. Because in chapter 3, it's this list of the people who worked on the wall. It's there for a reason. The Bible tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed. Not sure exactly the reason. I'm going to come back to it today a little bit and talk about chapter 3 and make some observations, but more just to make a point, not to try and teach something about chapter 3. So I appreciate that Greg did that. But we're going to jump back into chapter 4. Last week, Greg stopped uh, at chapter 4 and verse 14. So let's, let's back up a little bit, get the, hit that ramp and get a little run at where we're going. And uh, we'll start with chapter, I want to go back to chapter 4 and verse 7. So look in your Bibles at chapter 4, verse 7, and I'm going to read verses 7 through 9. Follow along with me. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that their breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. 
and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. What a bunch of rascals. They would uh, plot to cause confusion among the Israelites as they were working on, the, on rebuilding the wall. Then you jump over to verse 11, and it makes, uh, it makes it clear these weren't just rascals trying to cause some trouble. Verse 11, it says, And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. In verse 7, it talks about, or verse 8, about causing confusion, but it clarifies they want to cause confusion by killing them and stopping the work. So this was, uh, this was not just some small, fairly harmless plan. And then we look ahead to chapter 4 and verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. I just think that's something interesting to, to highlight as we get started this morning, that these enemies weren't just trying to cause confusion. They were wanting to kill the Israelites as they were working on the wall. But God had frustrated their plan. And it wasn't really the strategy of Nehemiah. He had a strategy. They prayed, first of all. They set guards. And, uh, and then the enemy realized that the Israelites now knew that they were coming, and that frustrated their plan. But that's interesting that in verse 15, it doesn't say that when the enemies realized that Nehemiah had an excellent strategy and had prepared for them and he was no longer going to be successful, they changed their mind. No, it says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall and went to work. And again, it proves what Greg has been teaching us and what we should be looking for when we look at Scripture. What is God doing? Not what kind of a plan did some man come up with that worked perfectly that we can learn from. What did God do and what can we learn from that? God frustrated their plan. Let's keep moving forward and I'm going to read verses 16 through the end of the chapter. So follow along with me. Then we'll come back and talk about this a little bit. Starting at 16, from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows and coats of mail and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people the work is great and widely spread, and were separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. So we see what uh, Nehemiah's strategy was here for the ongoing work in, in light of the threats that were against them. We see in verse 15 that the enemy 
had, uh, had, had not carried out their attack, but they were still there. They were still plotting and there was still danger. And so they had to acknowledge that danger and have a way to keep moving forward with the building of the wall. And here are a couple of things that they did. One is they, work, they worked prepared to fight. As they worked, they were ready at the sound of the trumpet or some other sign that trouble was afoot. They were ready to put down their work and be, go, transfer from being laborers, construction workers, to soldiers. And they were prepared to do that. Not just prepared mentally and strategically, but prepared actually by having a sword in one hand, their work materials in the other. If you were carrying bricks, they would load you with just enough bricks to carry in one hand so you could have your weapon in the other hand. It doesn't sound like the most efficient way to build a wall, does it? Maybe not the most efficient way to uh, fight a battle either, but that's the plan. That's what they did. They were prepared to, fly, to fight. Nehemiah told them to be ready at the sound of the trumpet. He talks about the trumpeter that was there with him, but the implication is that there were trumpeters staged around the wall. Think about uh, this wall. This wasn't just a small section of wall. It's, from what I can tell from research, at that day, the, the wall that was around Jerusalem, because like in any city, it changed through the years. The city got bigger. The wall had to be expanded. But at this time, the wall around Jerusalem was about two and a half miles. So about two and a half miles of wall. They weren't building the wall from scratch. In fact, that might have been easier. You know, it's easier to build something new than to rebuild something that's been built before and you have to figure out how it was built and how to tie in the new construction with the old and all of that. And especially when you're building a fortification like the wall of this city. It had to be done right. Where they connected the new wall with the old wall, it had to be done right. And then think of the scope of the wall. This wall was about 12, 15 feet thick, about 30 feet high, and again, two and a half miles wall long. And it wasn't just a wall. In that wall, there were all the gates for people to go in and out, for commerce to go in and out. There was also a series of towers along the wall. So they either had to rebuild these towers or make sure the wall was properly connected to the towers. What I'm saying is it was a complex thing, what they were doing. And the scope of the thing was big, two and a half miles long. So as they were working, all the workers were spread out along. If you go back to chapter 3, and I encourage you to, by the way, just to look through that and read that. There's some interesting observations there. In fact, we're going to touch on it in a few minutes. But as they were building that wall, they... Uh, they were spread out along the two and a half miles, each one assigned to a section of the wall that they were building. And if the enemy attacked at one section, and I'm working a mile away, I wouldn't particularly be aware of what was going on and unable to go and help them. And so they had trumpeters stationed around. If you hear the sound of the trumpet, most of us can tell sort of the direction the sound is coming from. Go to where the trumpet is sounding, prepared to fight because the attack is afoot. And then as a, not just a demonstration of how serious this was, but proof of how serious this was, Nehemiah and his men, and I assume many other people who were leaders under Nehemiah and their men actually didn't go home at night. For the remainder of the job, they slept there, stayed in their clothes, kept their weapons at hand, so if there was an attack in the middle of the night, they would be prepared for it. And the enemy, I'm sure, knew that. Knew they was aware that there was not a time of day a spot on the wall, or any other obvious weakness where it was the right place to attack. 
It's pretty good strategy, right? It's a shame that the story is not there to teach us about strategy. It's there to teach us about God. Why did, why did this guy have that kind of strategy? It's because God was leading him. God was in him. Who was this guy? He was a cupbearer to the king. And God was doing some amazing things in him and through him. But remember, this is not about a great leader. This story is teaching us about a sovereign God. Several months ago, Greg uh, came by my office in Fort Pierce one morning. In fact, he was uh, spending a few days at a place uh, down on South Hutchinson Island uh, doing some sermon preparation, planning out uh, the next couple of series of preaching. And, uh, and he came by my office, and we sat there uh, and talked one morning. And during that, con- I never told Greg this, during that conversation, he told me that he, uh, he was working on a series to teach through Nehemiah. And what I never told him is that I was disappointed when I heard that. I, I have heard so much bad teaching from the book of Nehemiah and so little good teaching. I was turned off by the book of Nehemiah years and years ago. And this, this is a fault. It's, my, it's, it's scripture. I shouldn't have felt that way about it. But it was because I've heard so many people stand up and teach the book of Nehemiah as if this is a, the leadership manual for Christians. This is how project management should be done. If a church like we are doing is starting a project with a property and some building, then this is how it's to be done. Well, first of all, there's very little application, I hope. You know, maybe the Baptists will be coming against us and we have to have a a paint roller in one hand and like a machete in the other, but I don't anticipate that. Baptists are relatively peaceful people. Um, there's very little application. We're not rebuilding. I mean, but I've, I've heard so many times people in, in churches that were in projects, or in most of my ministry career, I've been working not in churches, but in nonprofit ministry organizations. Man, they love teaching this book about strategy for preparing leaders and, and carrying out projects, major campaigns, all the stuff that they have to do. And there are some, there are some applications. There are some good things we can learn. But When you do that, you're violating this principle, that this story is not about a great leader. This story is about a sovereign God. Our purpose in studying this is not to learn management principles. It's not to learn how we can lead a project successfully. It's about how God related to these people. And we get to know not project management and leadership better. We get to know God better, which is actually... God's desire for us. That's why he's given us scripture, so that we can get to know him better. There are a couple of reasons why, uh, besides that that main one, uh, another reason why uh, we shouldn't use Nehemiah as a leadership text. And it's just this. He he made some decisions that maybe uh, weren't that great. I mean, I'm not here to criticize Nehemiah or his management skills. Think, after all, of of the fact that this guy was a cupbearer to the king. How did he learn about the problem with the walls in Jerusalem? It, it tells you in chapter 1 that he, the, some, some people came to the king's court who were from Jerusalem, and he asked them, what's the state of the people in Jerusalem and the city there? And when they told him, he was burdened, he was grieved. And so that's how this whole thing started. But he, after all, was just the cupbearer to the king. Who were the experts in that part of the story? Probably the guys who came from Jerusalem and reported this to him. They were the ones who knew what the problem was, 
and probably had a good idea about how to solve it. It doesn't tell us, but possibly that's even why they were there, to bring that message to the king. But Nehemiah was just the cupbearer to the king. The cupbearer who God then spoke to and moved in to get this ball rolling. But it wasn't about Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, uh, we would have to imagine him to be an expert in construction, not just construction, but architecture, and not just architecture, but how, how to design and build something as complicated as a 12-foot thick, 30-foot high reinforced wall around a two-and-a-half-mile city with towers and gates and all of that. He, I'm sure he had no idea how to do all those things. I'm sure that God brought to him people who could. But we also have to assume that he was a brilliant military strategist who could consider the, the, the attacks and where they would come from and how to best prepare and, and defend against them if they came and, and to, to be, show enough strength that possibly the enemy wouldn't even come to build that kind of a strategy. What, I, I heard a, a, a brilliant guy a few weeks ago do a speech about Ronald Reagan uh, and his strategy f during, the, during the Cold War that brought the Cold War to an end. Fascinating speech, full of great history. It seems similar. You know, Ronald Reagan, if you were alive back then, you remember his strategy was basically to show enough strength to stand up to the communism that, uh, that eventually they would all decide that maybe, you know, that, that wasn't the best way. Maybe Nehemiah was this brilliant military strategist who had that sort of plan as well. I, I don't think that was the point. And then the other thing, we see Nehemiah as a, a brilliant master of interpersonal relationships and communications. Like he always knew the right thing to say at the right time. He would, his people were, were upset because they're, they're living under threat. He knew how to inspire them and reassure them. When they were overwhelmed by the scope of the job that they were being asked to do, he knew what to say to, to encourage them and give them th th what they needed to, to, go to get out there and build that wall. When people from outside the city came ten times to tell them, why don't you guys give up and come back out and here live outside the city with us where you're not going to be under constant attack, Nehemiah knew what to say to them. But was he a brilliant strategist militarily? Was he a brilliant architect? And building manager, was he a, a brilliant communications expert who knew exactly what to say to the people at the right time? I don't think he probably was. I think he was just the cupbearer to the king. And the story isn't about him. It's about how God said, watch what I can do through this guy. Friends, this should give us so much hope. This should give us so much reassurance. Because if my job was to emulate Nehemiah to figure out what were all the great things that Nehemiah did, and then maybe if I do all my things exactly like Nehemiah did and I do it as well as him, then maybe I'll be successful like he was successful in the ministry projects that I'm in charge of. Man, that, that's, that's a lot of pressure. And that's not it as God. That's not, not it, at, it at all. It's that God said, look what I can do with a cupbearer to the king. And maybe one day... 35, 37 years ago in Avon Park, Florida, when I was a painting contractor uh, up on a ladder painting the side of a building, God said, I bet I can use that guy too. And my story is about how God can use anybody to do whatever God 
decides to do. And knowing that, realizing that, looking at the stories of the Bible from that perspective gives us not only proper thinking, but it gives us hope as well. From chapter 1, we realize that there are a couple of really positive things about Nehemiah that we can emulate. One of them is that Nehemiah knew God. As soon as Nehemiah heard about the problem, his response, as he was grieved in his spirit, was to pray about it, ask for favor with the king, realizing that if this was going to be addressed, it was going to be because God was going to move. And he knew God. He knew God's requirement for obedience. And his original prayer, when he heard about this, and his heart was broken and grieved over the city of Jerusalem and the, the, the way the people there had to live without the protection of the walls around them, he said to God in that prayer, the recognition that it's because of the disobedience of the people of Israel that God has put them in this situation. He recognized, he knew some things about God. One of those things was that God requires obedience and that without obedience, there are consequences. And this is the story of Scripture also, isn't it? That the wages of sin is death, not physical death. We all die. It's appointed unto man wants to die and then face the judgment. It's spiritual death, eternal separation from God. That's the punishment for sin. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He knew God. He knew God's requirement for obedience. He knew God's requirement for repentance. And in his prayer that is recorded back in chapter 1, he says to God that as, as we repent, asking God to restore uh, the city of Jerusalem and restore them there. So if we want to use the book of Nehemiah as a model for something, maybe we should use it as a model for that. We should be people who know God. We should be people as followers of Christ. If you're a child of God who's come to God in faith, repenting of your sin and asking God to change you and to make you his child and to forgive you and to give you that relationship with God that only comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. If you're in that position this morning, then we should be looking to God for how he can use us, for what he wants to do through us. Here's a principle. The Bible is not a leadership manual. The purpose of Scripture is not to teach us about organizational leadership, or project management, or business success. That's not the purpose of it. It's applied in those ways far too often. What is the reason for Scripture? What is the purpose of Scripture? Conveniently enough, Scripture tells us what is the purpose of Scripture. In fact, if you have your Bible then turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. You probably know this verse by heart, roughly, if not verbatim. These two verses, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, where it tells us exactly what is the purpose of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness with this purpose, in 17, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. What is the purpose of Scripture? Not to teach us how to live life, manage our business, manage a project, approach leadership. We can learn 
some principles for those things. But usually when they're taught in Scripture, they're not disguised in the story like the story of Nehemiah. It's spoken out plainly like this. I remember my dad teaching me some of these verses when I was a teenager. Consider the ant, you sluggard. There's a business principle. Another one my dad loved to tell me, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will be upon you like a bandit. There's a business principle. We learn all kinds of things in the Bible, but they're, they're given to us as direct commands, direct teaching. Very rarely are they disguised in a story. There are sometimes principles that we can learn from stories, but the stories are primarily to teach us about God, not to teach us about the individuals who are in the story. The leadership models in Scripture are not always reliable, and here's why. Because sometimes God, uh, don't take this wrong, plays tricks. I, I mean, what God does sometimes is he will set people up for failure. We see it in the story of Moses. Remember back in the story of Moses. In fact, our Scripture uh, reading this morning from the book of Exodus had this purpose, to help us to remember the story of Moses. How did God call Moses? Do you remember that story? Moses was out in the desert. There was a burning bush. That's curious. But then he noticed something even more curious about the burning bush. It was burning, but it wasn't consumed. It just kept burning. It didn't burn up or burn out. And so he went and approached to it. And then something strange happened. God spoke to him from that fire and told him, Moses, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground. I've been in all kinds of places, in the mountains, in the desert, all over the world. I never had this happen. This is strange. This is very, very unusual. And then what did God tell Moses? So God, God, God called Moses through this, and in that calling, didn't just give him a feeling, some urge inside. I remember talking to my dad about when, when God called him to be a pastor. Dad is 88 years old, spent his entire life as a pastor and as a missionary. And he remembers not only the day, but where he was on the back of Little Mud Lake, on the edge of Petoskey, Michigan, out in the woods as a teenager when God called him to be a preacher. But I don't think there was a burning bush involved. And I don't think God said, Ken, take off your boots. You're standing on holy ground. I mean, wouldn't that be wonderful? To have God speak to you so clearly and so plainly? Would you like that, Greg? God just says, here's where I want you to stand. Here's what I want you to do. And here's what I'm telling you your plan of action is. And God did exactly that. God told Moses, you're going to go to Pharaoh. And here's what you're going to tell him. There wasn't some vague intuition about what God is wanting him to do. You could not have a clearer instruction from God than God gave to Moses. Agreed? Of course you agree. And then God convinced Moses. How did God convince Moses? Right there while he's standing with his shoes off in front of this burning bush, Moses had his doubts. Not all about doubting God, but doubting himself and his ability to do this. And so God told him, throw your staff on the ground, and it turned into a snake. And God was doing these wonders to prove to Moses right there during his calling which involved an exact specific, this is where you're going to go, who you're going to talk to, and what you're going to say. Oh, you don't, you don't believe that this is the right thing? Here, let's do this. Throw your stick on the ground. Now, now do you believe me? And then he still didn't think that he was the right guy to do it because he wasn't good at speaking. So God 
gave him his brother Aaron to go and be his mouthpiece. So God called him, God convinced him, and then God equipped him. And then the last thing that God said there at the burning bush, because Moses still wasn't sure that he was ready for this, God said, I will go with you. (laughs) What more could you ask if you want clarity from God and confidence in the mission that he's given you to do, that he called you that distinctly, convinced you with signs and wonders, equipped you with exactly the people you need around you to do the job, and then ultimately said, on top of all that, I'm going to go with you. I'll be right there with you. And then what happened? It was at the end of the scripture that, that uh, Pastor Brenton read for us this morning. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, this is odd. That's what I meant by a trick. It seems like a trick from a human perspective. God did all of this to, to pave the way perfectly so Moses could go and do the job that Moses was to do, to go to the guy who was in charge, give him the message, and tell him exactly how it's going to happen, even to have signs and wonders that would be performed in front of Pharaoh. But God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, Moses didn't especially know all that. Oh, maybe he did. I guess God told Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. It doesn't seem like fair play, does it? So if you want to have a model for leadership, uh, you, you should look at Moses and how Moses did all of these things exactly like God had told him to do. And what was the end result? Absolute failure in the, in the immediate problem of getting the, the Israelites released from Pharaoh. Absolute failure, even though he did exactly what God had said. The point is we can't go to Scripture and say, this leader did this and this and this, and so if I do these four things as well, then I can expect the same good results that that guy had because it's not about that. The story of Moses wasn't about that. Why do you think God did this? I don't exactly know, but I I could guess. You know, there are some outcomes that we can see. One of them is that God wanted to demonstrate his might. It says that in Scripture. God did this so he could demonstrate his mighty power. God wanted to demonstrate his sovereignty, that he as God could change the heart of Pharaoh for him or against him. God could turn and harden Pharaoh's heart. But here's the big thing. The people of Israel were about to start this journey where they were to follow this guy Moses. And I'm sure that God wanted to demonstrate to his people his power so they would follow him. So they wouldn't just be looking to Moses, who was their leader, but they would be looking to God, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Because some crazy things were about to happen. And you know what? It still didn't go well. They've spent 40 years wandering around in that desert. It wasn't, it's not a model plan for us to follow. The point of the story is about God. Let's go back to Nehemiah and consider that. Back in Nehemiah chapter 3, there's this list of the people who worked on the wall. And I just want to point out a couple of them because I thought it was, frankly, kind of humorous. But it also demonstrates that maybe this this wasn't the best strategy. Maybe this wasn't a brilliant leader and a brilliant architect. Some of the people he had working on the wall, there's a guy who worked with his daughters. Now, that's great. I, I don't have any sons. I have three wonderful daughters. You know, I love to do things with them. And I'd take them hunting with me. I'd teach them how to, when I was working on a building project, I'd teach them how to do that stuff. I, I did all the, all the things with them. But if you're building a, a 12-foot thick, 30-foot high reinforced wall with humongous blocks of stone, 
you probably wouldn't want me and my three daughters to be, you know, part of the work crew. You want to get someone else to, to do that job. Then there's the perfumer. I thought that was fun. The perfumer. I, I'd have thought, you know, if I was in charge, I'd say, hey, perfumer, you know, you're a different kind of guy. You like perfume and stuff? That's great. I mean, we need that. Things get smelly. In fact, we got all these guys out there sweating and working and building the wall. You know, concoct some good perfume and bring it around so everybody can, you know, smell better. Do that. That will be your contribution to the building of the wall. But no, the perfumer was out there building the wall. The goldsmiths. I, I bet the goldsmiths had a beautiful section of wall. Probably had gold used for mortar or I don't know what they did. But again, probably they're used to crafting things out of gold, jewelry and ornate stuff, not walls 12 foot thick and 30 foot high out of humongous chunks of stone. But that's, that's who God had doing that. And then the priests. I mean, no offense to, to pastors, but, uh, you know, mo most preachers, like my dad, called by God when they were young, go to college, Bible college, seminary, whatever their education might be, start working in the church. Many of them never worked a day in their life in a regular job outside of the church. And that's okay. That's the way it was for the priests too. They were set apart and sanctified and taught certain things and lived a certain way, wore certain kinds of robes and, and uh, you know, were really good at slinging the thing with the incense in it. You know, they had all kinds of special skills. But building walls out of rock, I think what I would have done, especially in light of the threats from Sinbala and all of his guys, I would have been like, look, priests, we got a lot of bad stuff brewing here. And uh, we need 24-hour prayer coverage. So while we're out there building that wall, all of you priests, you know, we don't, we don't need you building the wall. We need you back in the temple praying to God for our protection and for our success. That would make a lot more sense, wouldn't it? Have you ever seen preachers build? You're about to, right, Greg? Yeah, when we get into that new church building and we all start picking up tools, uh, I know preacher Greg will be up there. Pastor Brenton, we'll all be up there helping. But it might not be the most finely skilled work that comes out of it. And then, uh, this is just an aside in chapter 3, you know, there's the dung gate. And, and I wondered who, who built, the, it says who built the dung gate, but I wonder how they felt about it. I know, I know if I was in charge of the project, I would have made sure that the best builder of all was building the dung gate. Because we don't want that getting clogged up. We want that to function properly. Chapter 4. I mentioned this when we were looking at chapter 4 at the beginning of this, this message. Sword in one hand, tools in the other. Really? That sounds to me like that's going to be someone who can't do their work very well and sure couldn't fight very well either. Wouldn't it make a lot more sense to say, okay, you two guys, you carry the sword, you're working. And you stay together. Side by side, you're a pair. One of you's carrying a sword, looking around. You're not paying attention to how straight the rocks are in the wall. You're looking around, watching for the enemy and ready to fight. And you keep your mind on your work because we got this work to do. Don't worry about the enemy. He's going to watch for the enemy. He's going to do his job. You do your job. But you take this, these two guys and, and put a weapon in one hand and some tools in the other. I don't know about you, but I can't use both hands equally well. Whichever hand 
which whatever job this hand is going to do is not going to be a job that's well done, whether that's fighting or building. It just doesn't seem like a great strategy. It's poetic, but it's not practical. And sleeping their clothes on the job site for an extended length of time, I mean, these guys had to be worn out. In modern military, it's much more common for some people to sleep and other people to stand guard. Everybody doesn't stand guard 24 hours a day because you'll just get worn out and you won't be good at anything. All I'm saying is there might be some flaws in this plan. So the people who would take Nehemiah and say this is the perfect model for project management and leadership uh, might not have it all right. In fact, they don't have it all right because, remember, this is not about a great leader or a great man. The story is about a sovereign God. The God who said, look what I'm going to do. And our job is not so much to learn about Nehemiah. Our job is to learn more about God. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, one of my favorites. It says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. A couple of days ago, uh, Deb Walker uh, texted me, no, last Monday, I guess it was, and she said, uh, for, for the uh, e-newsletter, I need uh, the title of your sermon, and I also need uh, like a little blurb, promotional blurb about it. I hate doing that. I, you know, I don't, I don't know a title for the sermon, and a promotional blurb, I don't know what to say. So I said, get, get back to me in a couple days. Thursday was my deadline. So Thursday, I knew I had to come up with something, and I came up with this that we might have hope, because that's the purpose of what we're studying here. The, the things that were written in the past were written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And, and listen, friends, this is, this is where hope comes from, understanding that this is not about Nehemiah, that this is not teaching us that if you use Nehemiah as your model and do the things that he did, and act the way he acted, and have the skills that he had, then you can also be successful in your life like Nehemiah was in his. That's how it's commonly taught, but that is not the thing. There's no hope in that. There's so much pressure in that. If I think I have to do all the things that Nehemiah did in order to be successful, if I have to follow God the way Moses did in order to be successful, if I have to be like Paul and do all the things that Paul did in order to be successful, Last night at dinner, Jessica was, was talking about her favorite Bible story as we were talking about some of this, the, the book of Ruth. And, and, and she was saying, you know, when I think about it from that perspective, I want to go back and read the book of Ruth again because I, I've always read the book of Ruth looking at Ruth as a model, uh, characteristics that I want to have, have an attitude that I want to have. And all, all that might be true, but the book of Ruth is not about Ruth. The book of Ruth is about God. And what God did in the life of this poor person who was not even an Israelite. She was from outside of the people of Israel and became a widow. And all the story of Ruth, from a different perspective, when you realize it's about God, then the call isn't, how can I be like Ruth? It's, what can I expect of God when I go through the trials of life? The things were written in the past were written so that we might have hope. In Romans chapter 9, don't worry, I'm, I'm getting close to wrapping up here. I just introduced another scripture. You think it's the next uh, sermon that I'm tying into this one. In Romans chapter 9, the, the apostle Paul referred to Pharaoh and how God had hardened Pharaoh's heart, teaching 
the church at Rome who were living under the evil Roman Empire, but not just living under the evil Roman Empire, but right in the heart of it, in Rome itself. So Paul, writing this letter to the believers in Rome, teaching them, reminding them of the story of Pharaoh and how God worked through Pharaoh, how God hardened Pharaoh's heart to teach them this lesson, that our sovereign God is in control of the hearts of kings. And as you're living under the evil empire of Pharaoh, then you can trust our sovereign God too, because he is the one who ultimately is in control of these things. The things that were written in the past were written so that we might have hope. Throughout history, throughout Scripture, God demonstrates his glory and his power often through the stories of his interaction with men and women. But the story is not about the people. The lessons not to learn to be like them. The story is about God. And the lesson is to get to know God better, to know his nature, his character, his faithfulness, his requirement for holiness. And in light of our inability to be perfect, what he has done to provide a redeemer so that we, through the blood of Christ, could stand clean and justified before this holy, almighty God. And as we learn these things about God through his interaction with men and women in the stories of the Bible, then it should move our hearts in the way that the first song that we sang this morning described. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art. That is the purpose of the story of Nehemiah. So that we, as we learn about the character and the nature of God, doing miraculous things through the cupbearer of food taster, a poison tester, that we might have hope. Understanding that this same God is working in my life. Not putting on me a requirement to be as good as Nehemiah, but a requirement to recognize my need of a Savior and to recognize God's provision of that Redeemer. Remember, friends, none of this is about our performance. It's not about how good we can be, how strategic we can be in our approach to things, how great of a leader we can be, how good we can be at interpersonal relationships. All of those things matter. And they're things that we should pay attention to. But ultimately, all of those situations are going to put us in places where we will fail. And at the end of the day, when we fail, where do we go? Who do we turn to? Just try again? Sometimes people approach Scripture like they're talking about the story of the little train who could. It's not it. We're the little people who can't whose righteousness is like filthy rags before Almighty God, who can't possibly do enough good to cover the fact that we're sinners who need to be saved by grace. And nothing can replace us having to go to God with empty hands of faith before the cross, recognizing the blood of Christ is all that can purify us from our sin and make us eligible to stand before God and be his children. That's what we call salvation.
And that's what th that is exactly what the stories of Scripture are turning us toward. So there's just a little bit from the middle of the book of Nehemiah, the end of chapter 4, uh, a story that Greg thoroughly taught us last week. I just wanted to share some observations. And this is my hope, that as just the way Paul directed the church of Rome to look back at the things that were written in the past, just as I'm sure that Nehemiah probably knew this, I'm sure that he would have known the story of Moses and Pharaoh, probably remembered that, probably learned things about God from that that prompted him to approach God the way he did in the middle of all of this. Things that were written in the past were written to give us encouragement, to give us endurance, so that we might have hope. And let your hope be in that today, folks, in the God, the sovereign God of Israel, the God who saves, the creator, the one who made a cupbearer and then gave him an overwhelming assignment that from my analysis, he probably didn't carry out in the best possible way. But God, who is rich in mercy, did some things to demonstrate his greatness and, and power. The God who gave an assignment to Moses and then stacked the deck against him. So God knew that he would fail. And Moses must have been so crushed and frustrated when he kept getting denied by Pharaoh. And problems kept happening, not just then, but all through those 40 years in the wilderness. But God proved his faithfulness. And we can look at those things and have hope. Father, we're thankful this morning for the record of the scriptures for the stories of how you, Almighty God, have dealt with people through the years, through the generations. And Father, help us to absorb properly the truths that we can learn about you, your nature, your character, your demand for holiness, and your grace and your mercy and your provision of a Savior so that we might have hope. Father, you're good to us. We're grateful for the Savior, for the forgiveness of sins. We're grateful for the lessons that we can learn from the scriptures that you have inspired and that our God breathed. Help our hearts to absorb and to remember, to retain. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, as you leave this morning, I encourage you to greet one another. The Bible says to greet one another with a holy kiss. I'm not asking you to do that. Uh, but if you do, you know it's in the scripture. Uh, but greet one another. Be, a, be the family of God who is part of Vero Bible Fellowship. Have a wonderful day, and God bless you this week.